Forum Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North and welcome to our conversation with Dr. Joseph Patrick Farrell called The Spider in Roswell. He is a true Renaissance man and an expert on many fields, notwithstanding the breakaway civilization, which this program is a part of a longer series we're in the process of making here at the Forum. Farrell has his PhD from Oxford University and is a former adjunct professor, composer of classical music, plays the harpsichord and produces books like A German Factory. So far he has authored 28 and counting. Check out his biography and complete bibliography at our website where you'll also find various links to his online presence, including his website and blog Giza Death Star. One of his series of research is into the covert aspects of the National Socialist Movement. He now returns to the forum to account for an original take upon the legendary UFO crash at Roswell and what possible connection it may have to such international Nazi underground networks as Die Spinne, the spider. Now, unfortunately, we had some connection and sound problems, uh, which led to a slight loss of the recording, but nothing essential as we managed to salvage almost everything. Welcome back to the forum, Joseph. Thank you. Thanks for having me back, Al. Freshly back from the space <laughs> conference, huh? <laughs> well, I'm back. I, I may be a little fresh, but, you know, in, in American English, that, that means um, slovenly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I've been recuperating the last week. Yeah, you're pleased with it? Uh, we were very pleased. The audience participants there, were, there were about 300 uh, in spite of the weather problems, in spite of the fire uh, problems and some other things that went on, we think maybe to divert mm. people. It was a very successful conference. Um, we had Catherine Austin Fitz. We had uh, Dr. John Brandenburg, the plasma scientist from Los Alamos, talking about Mars. We had Olaf Phillips that did an excellent presentation, in my opinion, about um, the realities of the Alternative 3 scenario. Mm. We had Walter Bosley, my friend, uh, talking about the airship mystery, revealing some, I thought, this blockbuster new information in his presentation. Mm. Uh, we had Jay Dyer talking about the themes of spe secret space programs in the film. Hmm. Uh, it was it was one of those. What about Paul Laviolette? I was looking forward to him. Oh, he was excellent. Uh, he did a presentation on physics and, and alternative technologies. Of course, he's been one of my favorite researchers for quite a long time. We had a nice discussion Friday night at dinner. Uh, Linda Moulton Howe did a presentation on alien interactive software which was rather fascinating wow. uh, 
so it was a good it was a good conference and the thing that really struck me is again uh, we had no no attempt at coordination between any of the speakers directly and yet we meshed very very well uh, together there were themes that Olaf talked about that I talked about there were themes that Walter talked about that I talked about and that Catherine talked about you know it meshed very well mm. and uh, Jaren van Straten and his team from from the Netherlands just did a, a huge job uh, with coordinating the, the schedule we had to change the schedule at the last minute because of the weather uh, you know and and Catherine and I she remarked to me that if this had been up to Americans it would have been a disaster you know, because, <laughs> because they wouldn't have been able to handle you know the last minute schedule changes and, and juggling all the balls with you know the weather we had to get people at the airport at different times that than we had planned on so you know I had a friend that came down from Chicago and he was responsible for picking people up at the airport, but it, it meshed very well. It was it was um, a very so. What was up with the weather then? Uh, I don't know. Quite frankly, I'll tell you, Al, what we suspect may have been going on. And and again, this is going to sound like we're trying to aggrandize and and, and give some self-importance to things, but it was extremely suspicious that the weather just rained buckets and right there at, at Bastrop, there was flooding right there in Bastrop that um, wow. we were just all amazed that, you know, the weather just turned so suddenly uh, foul. Um, Isn't this supposed to be one of the hot spots of uh, America? Well, it's, yeah, I mean, that part of Texas during this time of year is, is rather a mild climate, but um, mm. it, the weather, and then two weeks before that, there were fires in Bastrop that destroyed 4,200 acres, mm. and then uh, we were noticing about about two months before the conference, there were things that began to appear on internet, stressing secret space program and so on and so forth, and at one point, people started putting up the Secret Space Program Conference logo with people's pictures that weren't even invited speakers. Hmm. Uh, you know, the Corey Good thing broke before the Secret Space Program yeah. Conference, and we thought that was highly unusual. And there was even some pressure on the conference organizers to have him invited to the conference. We noticed during the second day that speakers would be interrupted from the floor. Mm. Uh, we noticed a bunch of strange things going on during the, the breaks between speakers outside when everybody's kind of milling around talking. So we suspect that there may have been an, an attempt to kind of um, spin the conference, derail it, you know, but all successful. Yeah, that's great. But listen, here in Europe, at least, it's uh, an old game of the intelligence to have sure. provocateurs placed. I mean, they did this only for <laughs> mundane situations like uh, communist meetings, anarchist meetings, union right. meetings. I mean, this is an old thing old to do this. And if there is indeed such a thing as a classified space fleet... Of course. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing that people can have conferences about it. Right. So at least expecting them to keep an eye. Right. Well, and maybe also interfere. That's that's just realistic. Well, yeah. I mean, when you get speakers like, you know, Catherine Austin Fitz or Dr. Mm -hmm. John Brandenburg, you're going to have, you know, people like that at least watching the conference. But we definitely think there were 
there was some provocative activity, agence provocateur, that that were not necessarily trying to disrupt things, but just interfere the flow and, and kind of reduce the um, the atmosphere that was created there. You know, Yaron, the organizer of, of these conferences, has as one of his goals to remake the conference culture in this country, which is in sore need of it. Um, yeah. In fact, during the first day of, of the conference at the roundtable discussion, there were questions, you know, well, why don't you invite more whistleblowers and people like that to tell their stories? And, and you know, I, I responded to that question basically to, to say that we have enough of that in the American conference culture. You can go to any number of conferences if you want to hear people tell stories mm. and have the, you know, American evangelical revival meeting, you know, tent meeting culture. <laughs> uh, there's enough that you can go to, but we don't want that here. We want to stress mm. people that are doing either journalistic or academic sorts of research or mm financial analysis of, of these types of things uh, because that's what's sorely needed in this conference culture. So Good point. yeah, Yaron has that, has that idea. I think he's been largely successful in getting that across at his conferences. So all in all, we, we definitely think it was a very successful conference. Um, it'll be, I think about six months before the actual presentations are open to the public on YouTube, but they are already up. Uh, for viewing for people that, you know, if you want to pay the 30, I think it's 30 or $40 to, to be able to watch those presentations, they are already up. So there were people who was watching live too, streaming. Oh yes. There, yeah, there, there was a live stream, uh, at this conference like there was last year at San Mateo. And we did have a number of people that, that because of the weather and so on, weren't able to make their flights, so they just tuned in on the live stream. We had, mm. I think, a, a fairly significant international audience as well on, on the live stream. So all in all, we think it was a, a very successful conference. I had the opportunity at long last to meet many of my website members in person. Cool. So, that you know, that was, that was kind of fun for me. Um, mm. It was the first time I'd actually met and, and uh, talked with people like Linda Howe and and, uh, and uh, Dr. La Violette. Uh, so you know, it, it's always it's always fun for the speakers as well as, yeah, as the audience sure. to be able to meet people. Yeah. <laughs> now you mentioned uh, conference culture in America. I'm hoping also that they're going to set up a new conference in Europe soon. I mean, they did have the first one in Holland. Yeah. So, but we support uh, that work. We're going to try to book uh, Jerome uh, at the show here eventually, uh, in good time before the next conference, to give a little more attention around it. It's such a good, yeah. uh, good initiative. But you're mentioning these uh, storytellers, and uh, uh, yeah, you know uh, that there was another conference shortly before this one with yeah. the same. Topic obviously, someone else uh, wants to milk this. Uh, the very fact that uh, people are not able to create uh, an intelligent and uh, research accountable conference for this thing uh, means that, uh, of course, there will be people who want to to milk it. But 
if we're talking about uh, hit pieces, nothing is better for the powers that be than to detract the whole thing with yes. some kind of fantasy gathering too. With, uh, yeah, we definitely think that, that there was an attempt to, at least in my opinion, it was fairly obvious with all the things that began popping up on the internet with... Mm. You know, secret space, this secret space, that, and of course it was, it was all spun to the to the extraterrestrial direction, you know, um, mm. which is to be expected. I think this is something that the the powers that be want to keep driving home. Um, mm. And our approach at the conference, you know, was basically not so much to to determine an answer are extraterrestrials among us, but more the academic type of argumentation. Well, if they are, you know, then then what is the the national security establishment going to do about it? Uh, what what might have been in their heads? And you know, that's always been kind of my approach. I know that it's been uh, Catherine's approach, and then of course Dr. Brandenburg with his recent uh, Martian studies about uh, the apparent effects after effects of nuclear weapons discharge on Mars is you know a significant development. Mm. And uh, he made it very clear in his presentation that, you know, he had submitted his paper, his formal academic paper to the U.S. government. And they told him, go ahead and publish, you know. So, yeah, attitudes may be changing. So I think, you know, I think there's always going to be there's always going to be an effort to detract serious uh, presentation work like we saw at this conference into frivolity and storytelling and whistleblowers. And I made it very clear you know, when I responded to that question in the first round roundtable discussion that, you know, anybody can get in front of a camera and tell a story. Anybody can show you credentials or fake credentials and claim to have been involved in this or that government program. Mm. Uh, you know, and there's so much of that that goes on in the alternative culture. We simply don't want it here. Yeah. You know, it's fine for those people to tell their stories and go on camera and, you know, get everybody all excited. Uh, but they can do that at another conference. <laughs> Indeed. Well, we can't expect um, alien uh, people to go down without a fight. So, um, right. Yeah. But we had uh, conference uh, host Daniel List on as a guest uh, recently, just yes. before before the conference. And we had a fine discussion about this very thing that uh, he calls it the third force, not to be confused with your the third way mm-hmm. definition, but the third force being then the attempt to make bunk out of stuff that otherwise boils down to hardcore facts so if you right. can if you can derail it into la la land then uh, much is achieved uh, that's the most effective method today right. to water out uh, whatever people may be on the track to now today i was thinking we could um, i've got a lot of requests from people wanting us to talk with you about other stuff than just uh, war history <laughs> Because right. because we've had already a few programs of stuff like Hermetica, we're going to have an alchemy series. So people have noticed that, hey, 
those Borealis, they're up, they are able to have programs about all the other stuff Farrell is writing about. <laughs> Why aren't they asking Farrell about that? Mm-hmm. So I want to I wanna just mention on air today, too, that we, we are getting around to as long as you're having patience with us. Sure, absolutely. But I, I just think we better, if not complete this series, at least move a little along uh, this series first. So I want to take on Roswell today. Sure, that's fine. Yeah, I guess uh, it's not that different from the space program subject anyway so no, huh? but this uh, harmonizes with the topic we have for today because last time we had you on Joseph we were completing uh, the war accounts mm-hmm. and moving further into yeah we passed the magical uh, limit of 1947 so I'm thinking despite the pressure we have from your supporters to interview you on other stuff than just war stuff we are very mm-hmm. aware that you are uh, a resource of a uh, host of other topics but we're getting there I hope sure. we're getting there as long as you're around and you're willing to get on the show we're going to interview you about these other matters too sure but I think that for today because we're down this road now let's just walk another mile and I'm thinking then to take on the very topic of aliens mm-hmm. versus Nazis as regard to Roswell mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I think it dovetails with what we talked about last time. And I, I have a couple of notes from our last talk that I, I want to start by mm-hmm. raising you these notes as topics. And when we're done with them, we can get our hands full with Roswell. Okay. So <clears throat> if you bear with me, I have a reasoning here. And it has to do with an analysis of uh, Dr. Kramer, the Bell scientist. Right. Okay. Now, in our last show, you accounted for Hess being one of the sponsors of the German Antarctica expedition. Mm -hmm. And you made the observation that he may have been murdered for that very reason. Mm -hmm. You also noted that Goering was the other sponsor. And lo and behold, he was incidentally also the main fall guy who was left to take the blame when the crazies like Himmler and Goebbels had fallen yes. and the evils uh, like Bormann and Mueller had fled like rats. Right. And so Goering was killed with official excuse as a war criminal. And also we speculated that whatever they found in Antarctica, if indeed anything, made it into the secret projects like the Wunderwaffe and who knows, maybe even accelerated the Bell project now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's our thought. Since the Bell scientist Richard Kramer was set free from the SS due to a release paper from Goering's office, right. <laughs> we, we can deduct that the project was of interest to the Air Force, where incidentally both Goering and Hess had their background, yes. which tells me that the Bell was intended for more than just Christmas decorations. That <laughs> indeed, yes. it, was, it was intended for aerial exploration, even if the technology itself represents so much more potential. Now, mm-hmm. the very fact that Kramer was freed mm-hmm. indicates that they must already have attained some degree of success or at least been very close to it since he was deemed so valuable. Perhaps if they had more time, they could sacrifice him and train up some new dude to take his place. Mm -hmm. But the very fact that he had done something serious enough to be arrested by the SS and the haste of which he was released, Mm -hmm. with the reason being given in the famous code of decisive to the war, shows me three things. One, Kramer was not fully on board, may have worked with a gun to his head, may even have sabotaged the project Mm -hmm. or expressed resistance somehow. Mm -hmm. Two, 
that the project was already at a level where it was of great matter, and three, that the project was considered of utmost haste. Yes. Comments? Well, I would agree with all of that, and it takes us directly into the Roswell story, because as I pointed out in, in Roswell and the Reich, the man that denounced uh, Richard Kramer to the Gestapo was, in fact, Dr. Kurt Davis. Mm. And it's because of that denunciation of Kramer to the Gestapo that American Army counterintelligence reopened his uh, security classification, his revetted him mm. after the Roswell incident, which I find very, very interesting. This this occurs within a month or two, right after the Roswell incident in July of 1947. Mm. So. They reopen his file, and Dr. Davis indicates that, yes, Kramer had expressed uh, sentiments to his colleagues that, you know, the war is lost, you know, uh, we've, we've got to change our ways, change our thinking, blah, blah, blah. So it does appear that you're correct that Kramer had some sort of reluctance mm. about the work that he was doing for the Third Reich. Now, that said, Davis goes on to be re-cleared by U.S. Army counterintelligence after they reopen his file when they learn about this denunciation to the Gestapo. Hmm. And the only denunciation that they can be talking about is, is Richard Kramer because of the, of the time frame that is mentioned and where both he and Davis are at the time. At the time, Davis is working for the um, Allgemeine Elektrizitätsgesellschaft, uh, AEG company, mm. so which you know is is the company that has its tentacles very directly connected to the Bell project. So it it ties directly. In, in other words, what I'm suggesting here is that th this whole story somehow ties to what's going on in the New Mexico desert in 1947 yeah. because there's no other reason for the U.S. Army to start looking at these paperclip scientists unless they have learned information or suspect information that places their, their paperclip project in jeopardy. And that's how all this comes about. So, yeah, it, it looks to me that you're correct, that, that we can assume that there was some reluctance on Kramer's part, that uh, Goering's office does most definitely get involved. I put that document in Roswell and the Reich. You can see the, the document there. Um, it is reproduced in Igor Vitkovsky's book, The Truth About the Wunderwaffe. And, you know, it's, it's right there. It's, it's Reich Marshal Goering's office. It's signed by the Plenipotentiary for Nuclear Research at the time in, in the Third Reich, a fellow by the name of Abraham Ezal. So, you know, it's all there. And, and incidentally, it is that precise document that mentions that this project, whatever they're working on, is Kriegsentscheidend. It's, it's decisive for the war. Mm. So you've got all this going on. Um, I, think, I think your conclusions are, are probably true, that uh, with respect to, to the Luftwaffe and, and Goering's involvement, yeah, this is something clearly that they think has, has some sort of grand significance for for completely force. remaking yeah for the air force for remaking for remaking aerial propulsion systems and so on and so forth so yeah there's a lot at stake here mm. and what it also tells me is that there's some deep deep awareness within the US mm. 
command structure of the Bell Project. They may not have recovered it or uh, had their hands directly on it, but I think by by the time you get to Roswell, there's something that's indicating that they know that this project existed, and they're really kind of fishing around for more information about it. I think this is ultimately what you see suggested by some of the, the Cooper Cantwheel Majestic 12 documents is very clearly they're bringing in in these documents, according to these documents, they're bringing in these paperclip scientists and pointing to the debris and, and saying, well, you know, does this look like anything you guys were doing? <laughs> yeah. But before we get to that point, I have another question about Kramer. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an observation, too, the, from last talk that I want to share with comments from you. Last time we accounted for the whereabouts of all the Bell scientists. Uh, right. It's interesting that most of them can be accounted for and that they were true believers that Bormann could trust, like Debus. Yeah. However, I speculate that since Kramer was denounced by Debus, he must apparently have transgressed, as you, you were touching upon yourself right now, either regarding their secret project, or maybe even try to sabotage it, as I mentioned, or at least have expressed some hostility towards it, or the Reich itself. Now, whatever the reason for them feeling the need to arrest him, Kamler and Goering, being somewhat realistic fellows with better right. insights into the state of affairs, must have realized that Kramer is too important to the project, that yes. he can't be replaced at the moment. Right. Indeed, the fact that he was so dramatically released indicates that he is unique to it, to the project somehow. Yes. Mostly due to the time pressure, of course, but still, they couldn't just grab any old scientist and throw him into the project. So... Right. Most likely the team was already at a bare minimum of necessity, the, the Bell team, as they had unlimited funds and manpower, as we know. So isn't it then also safe to assume that since the project was close to being ready and since it continued immediately after the war and since Dr. Kramer disappeared after the war, yes. that, <laughs> that he must have been abducted or in other ways forced to stay with the project. And the same, by the way, can also be speculated about this mysterious Elizabeth Adler. Granted, we don't know her position, but we do know that she also went missing. And the fact that she's a woman can give a little room for speculation that sure. she may have had second thoughts as soon as she realized the consequences of what she was working with. And indeed, even if she had been a loyal brainwashed minion of, uh, of the Reich during the war, at least if she remained on the team also after the war, then working for the spider Bormann must have felt less of a grandiose fate, mm -hmm. if not simply curing her for any, for an idealistic identification. Mm -hmm. It's not unrealistic that, to assume that she can have expressed doubts, leaving her in a vulnerable, untrusted position too. So, for whatever reasons, she too may have required coercion or abduction to remain on the post-war teams, unlike card-holding Odessa members, so to speak, like Richter, Diebus, and other true-believing Bell scientists. So in other words, I'm speculating that because there was few Bell scientists around, and because uh, the project survived the war, then the doctors Adler and Kramer's disappearance may be an indication that they are working on it against their will, under the gun, in some undercover Nazi camp. That, that could very well be, and I'll tell you why I'm intrigued with that speculation. I think you're on to something, because I do know that um, 
Igor and I both have attempted to track these two down. And there's a third uh, scientist that I mentioned in SS Brotherhood of the Bell and again in, in Secrets of the Unified Field. And this is a fellow by the name of Richard Jennings or Jenner. I don't remember the, the surname right at present. But this was a fellow apparently that according to Igor Vitkovsky's research, the U.S. Um, intelligence operatives going into the Third Reich were attempting to track down and recover for themselves, bring back to, to the United States. Now, Elizabeth Adler is, to me, the most interesting of them all, because, again, Igor and I have, you know, he has been there, right there in Warsaw, very close to Königsberg, or Kaliningrad, as it's known now, uh, and this is where she taught. She taught at the University of Königsberg. She was apparently an expert in some sort of obscure mathematics that, uh, according to the research I discovered, and and wrote about in in secrets of the unified field they they wanted her expertise for how to damp vibrations in large rotating masses wow. and that's all we know and you know i'm thinking okay what why are they concerned about this in relationship to the bell mm. uh we, we know about the rotation of the cylinders in the bell but i'm thinking also that when they say large masses well that that might be the the entire planet who knows but she had some sort of mathematical expertise and we simply cannot this is what i find so very unusual about her is we simply cannot find out anything about this woman mm. uh there's almost a total blackout so that raises, you know, that raises my suspicion meter into the red zone right there. You know, first of all, that the Nazis would bring in a woman to the project yeah. to begin with. This means that her area of specialty and expertise is very refined. It's very focused and they need it. Yeah. And then not to be able to find out anything about her. Uh, if memory serves me correctly, Igor had attempted to contact the university there in, in Königsberg. But I'll tell you the reason I'm suspicious about this is, is Königsberg was, of course, one of the places inside of Germany that had been the home, so to speak, to a lot of unified field theory mm. work, because this was where, for a period of time, uh, Dr. Theodor Kaluza was also present and and where he did some of his unified field theory work which he eventually published and of course it caught the attention of, of albert einstein between the wars mm -hmm. so there's something going on there um that's a clear indicator again you know when you connect the dots that whatever the bell is uh, i don't think contrary to many uh researchers i don't think it's simply an isotope enrichment centrifuge <laughs> because mm. you don't need unified field theory work you don't need somebody with elizabeth adler's unique uh, qualifications to be to be tinkering around simply with with an isotope enrichment centrifuge so the you know when you look at all these indicators yes the bell project is, is working on three uh sensational concepts in physics but again, you know, these these scientists, I think you may be right. Did they disappear into some post-war continuing Bell project? And why, why uh, were the sheets clean? I mean, uh, there's no info on them after the war. Right, exactly, exactly. It's those three scientists, uh, Richard Kramer, Richard uh, 
Yennings or Yenner, I forget what his name is, and Elizabeth Adler that, that we know next to nothing about. So either they are killed and their track record uh, wiped clean yeah. or they are uh, with a gun to their head, basically prisoners. They, they might be prisoners or they might be like Dr. Gerlach himself. They might have been warned by whoever not to say anything whatsoever about what they did. Mm. Uh, you know, Gerlach, after the war, simply avoided the whole subject of, of gravity, which was his interwar interest. So, yeah, we don't know. Um, this is yeah, but w- why would they disappear? I mean, even if, let's say, a brilliant person like Adler uh, was scared and quiet, at least her abilities wouldn't be squashed. I mean, she, she wouldn't become a cleaning lady after no, that. No, she would put her efforts to good use, and she didn't. Right. Which means that they are spent elsewhere, in, to my yeah, thinking. Yeah, uh, you know, I have no difficulty with that. You know, the real question is, would it have been in, in some post-war independent Nazi continuation of the project? Might she have been rounded up by, by the Soviets and taken back to the Soviet Union? to work on their projects. We simply don't know what happened to this lady. And uh, that it's one of the huge mysteries. Yeah, but uh, last time you also expressed, uh, you were kind of skeptical to the idea that the Nazis managed to attain field propulsion before the end of the war, based on the facts, of course. Yes. But even if the bell itself was not ready, which is why they needed to smuggle it out of the Third Reich in, in all haste. We we know that exile Nazi scientists experimented with cold fusion down in San Carlos de Bariloche, mm-hmm. where they probably also had uh, the bell for a while, mm-hmm. but we do not know where it goes next. But it's safe to assume that, given that Peron is in power from the end of the war and onwards, that they have unlimited funds uh, and I also have pressure from Bormann, mm-hmm. who is just about to set up his extraterritorial state based upon the Odessa network. Mm-hmm. So, but if the NIMSA people experimented with anti-gravity decades before managed some degree of success, mm-hmm. then it wouldn't be a far stretch to expect that the Nazi scientists, they had all the 30s to attain some insights into this. And indeed, we see them experiment with different types of flying machines yes. also, yes. including the disc shape jet propulsion vehicles as Schauberger's disc. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to my simple mind, if they did not reach their goal prior to the end of the war, certainly we should expect them to have managed by 1947. After all, they had two paranoid bosses breathing down mm-hmm. the neck, <laughs> Kamler and Bormann. So they certainly must have been impatient in the beginning, as there were no way of knowing if they would be left to their own devices. And in fact, even if that happened, if the Allies didn't go after the exile Nazis, mm-hmm. it would be the last thing for them to expect. So so what's uh, what's your view on, on uh, if they managed to get the bell ready right after the war? Well, I, I think it's that something... Let's put it this way. I think that something is ready after the war. By, uh, let's say, 47. By 47. Because in Roswell and the Reich, in in the 15th chapter, I point out a a story that has been largely ignored by the Roswell research community. Uh, And in fact, the story, the person that put me onto this story was Whitley Strieber. And I went out and, and read this man's book. It was a doctor that that writes books about people giving near-death 
having near-death experiences and then telling their stories. Well, one of the stories that he tells in the book is about someone who apparently told the story, and you can take this story for whatever it's worth. I simply include it in the book mm. for thoroughness sake. You know, I'm, I'm not big on using whistleblower stories, but in the context of everything else that I said in Roswell and the Reich, the story is very significant because this doctor tells the story about a man that was a patient of his that apparently had been part of the team going out looking at the Roswell debris, and he comes right out in the story and says very clearly that on the debris they saw, you know, the Balkankreuz, the, the German cross that, that was used on, on their aircraft and tanks during, during the war. And, you know, I thought that was so peculiar because it's clearly not an E.T. angle on the whole thing. <laughs> no. uh, but the story is, to a certain extent, corroborated by what you see appearing and happening in the documents after the Roswell event. Let me explain. Mm. You have the Cooper Cantwheel Majestic 12 documents that arrived on, on Timothy Cooper's doorstep, ostensibly sent from a, from a man by the name of Cantwheel. And I've reviewed these documents at length in Rise of the, of the Black Sun. I reviewed more of them, even in greater detail, in, in SS Brotherhood of the Bell. And what they state very clearly, whether they're authentic or not, is not really my concern. I'm concerned with the contents. Mm. Because what they state is that, yeah, they found this very strange debris, you know, in this field in New Mexico. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> and they brought in all these Nazi paperclip scientists to look at it. Mm. Now, again, this is part of the story that disturbs me. Because if true... It throws the whole extraterrestrial interpretation of Roswell into a cocked hat. And the reason is, is if the United States Army Air Force had genuinely suspected that it was looking at something extraterrestrial, then, you know, just being just being uh, and in, from an intelligence perspective, the last people that you're going to bring in to look at this stuff are your former enemies. You're going to keep this <laughs> a huge secret. Now, that's arguing on documents that may or may not be authentic. Mm. But that view, in turn, is corroborated by a document that is authentic and that is pointed out by the Roswell ufology community. And that's the Air Force Collection Intelligence Memorandum that is written by uh, Brigadier General Shulgin, to after Roswell, this is clearly a document that emerges as an intelligence response to the Roswell incident. Mm. But if you read the document in both its its fake form, which is the one that's usually cited by the Roswell community, and in its original form, which I reproduce both forms in the in the book, mm. in that document, Shulgin is very clearly describing UFOs that work on vectored jet exhaust turbines, okay, number one. And number two, he's also very clearly concerned about finding out where in the name of sense are the Horton brothers, you know, the designers of, of the German flying wings, the, the GOTA 229 and other flying wings. Mm. And, of course, I can tell you where they are. They're down in Argentina, <laughs> <laughs> you know, working for Juan Perón. 
along with Kurt Tonk and, and Emil Dewitine and, you know, all these, all these Richter. aerodynamic, Richter and all these people, you know, they're down there in Argentina working for Juan Perón. So the, the genuine document is pointing its finger, not at extraterrestrials. And, you know, I'm going to stamp my feet and dig in and be a stubborn Irishman here. Um, they're, they're, the document is pointing its finger not at extraterrestrials, but at the Nazis, clearly. Mm. So in that context of the genuine document, you go back and you look at the Cooper Cantwheel Majestic 12 documents, which say essentially the same thing. Oh, yeah, we brought in all these Nazi scientists to have a look, and they said, well, yeah, it looks like some of the stuff we might have been working on. In that context, then, the to my mind, the authenticity of uh, the probability that those Cooper Cantwheel documents are authentic goes up. Mm-hmm. So you see, my argument here is always contextual. You, you, you go from known quantities, the known documents, to documents that might be in jeopardy, and then from there you go on to, to the inside whistleblower story about seeing Nazi emblems on some of this debris. So when you look at it that way, the case begins to change because once you're willing to entertain the idea that this might not have been extraterrestrial, it might have been some advanced human form of technology, does that adequately explain what the American national security establishment reaction to Roswell is? And in my opinion, it does because if on the extraterrestrial interpretation, Roswell happens, they collect a bunch of debris, they realize that they're dealing with something extraterrestrial, and they panic. And they obfuscate the story and get everybody talking about weather balloons and try to bury it. Okay, mm-hmm. So that rationalizes the American behavior. But by the same token, if all of a sudden you're the U.S. Army Air Force, and you discover debris of something flying around in the New Mexico desert over your most sensitive military installations with impunity, mm-hmm. and it crashes, and it turns out to be Nazi, <laughs> mm-hmm. would you react in a similar manner? Well, of course you would. You'd try to obfuscate the story and get people looking in the wrong direction, namely at weather balloons or extraterrestrials, mm-hmm. And then, on top of this, you, you'd want to bury the story for the very simple reason that, you know, the war is supposed to be over. Mm-hmm. What are they doing flying around our skies? And if that's the case, where in the name of sense are they coming from? Mm-hmm. And this is precisely what you see in the Shulgin Memorandum. That he's saying, we need to find out where the Horton brothers are. Why? Because this is the indicator that they've suddenly realized they're dealing with an independent Nazi group and they're still producing this stuff. And it's coming from somewhere, and we better find out where real fast. Yeah. It wasn't just that they brought in German scientists, but they actually brought in Bell scientists. Yes. Yes. Isn't both Debus, Aubert, and Gerlach uh, involved in the examination of the Roswell uh, debris? No. Gerlach is Gerlach by this time has returned to West Germany. However, interestingly enough, if you if you really study the farm hall transcripts, which are the recordings that the British made of, of the German atomic bomb scientists, Paul Hartek, Karl Weizsäcker, mm. um, Werner Heisenberg, and so on. Gerlach, of course, was among the scientists that 
were brought to Farm Hall and their conversations recorded. But Gerlach is absolutely unique of all of these scientists because after this happens, the Americans bring him to this country where they interrogate him for about three months. Mm. So in other words, there's something about Gerlach that sticks out to the Americans that requires this special examination. They're not interested, in other words, in why Werner Heisenberg and Paul Hartek are all of a sudden able to give you an exact explanation of how the atomic bomb that the Allies used worked. You know, they let them go and go back to Germany and do your thing. It's Gerlach of all people, that they're interested. Yeah, because by this time they had successfully completed the atom bomb. They got their stuff, the U-boats with the uranium and uh, Nazi expertise already, probably as uh, an exchange for for Bormann. But there there are Nazi scientists on the NASA team uh, who did have access to... They're the Bell scientists who right. had access to the Roswell thing, right? Yeah, in the documents, it you know, Davis is is definitely one of the scientists that would have been, if that event actually happened, would have been one of the scientists brought up to New Mexico. Well, the reason they would have brought Davis up is is in my thinking twofold. Number one, he's close to Roswell, because he's based at Fort Bliss, which is in El Paso, Texas, which is an easy, easy drive over to Roswell. So he would have been ready to hand. They would have known enough about Davis to know that he was involved in projects other than just rocketry, given his specialty is not rocket uh, rocket science at all. He's a plasma physicist. He's a high-voltage Uh, physicist and so on and so forth that's his expertise Mm. so it's two things that to my mind indicate Davis is probably one of the chief contenders for whatever Nazi scientists may have been brought in to look at this stuff and that's he's ready to hand he's right in the area and secondly his his specialty is in the type of science that they think might have been involved now there's a third reason and that is of course it's within a month or two after the Roswell incident, that his whole security file is reopened. Mm. So in other words, something about it is also telling them that that they might be dealing with something Nazi. And as I pointed out in Roswell and the Reich, you have all of those uh, indications in in the counterintelligence files that they suspect that these Nazi scientists have a chain of command that they're answering to that's not exclusively American. Right, and they do continue on the team, right? After the cases are reopened, they're still uh, continuing in the 50s by researching this. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, right there, that tells me that somebody high up in the American command structure also called a halt to to the American counterintelligence investigations of these people. And my guess, you know, if I were to name one individual where that might have come from, it would probably be Alan Dulles. Mm. Well, uh, I'll tell you another uh, substantiation of your theory, Joseph, because when you published the book, mm-hmm. it made waves, not just waves of silence regarding <laughs> yeah. the reactions from the old God, but so many people started to take it seriously and re-examine it in this light that it's become an entire separate camp, so to speak, within the alternative community, yes. that there's so many now threatening the old view 
that something had to give. And I find it highly suspicious that very close to your book, right after came another book that's admitted that, no, 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 okay, it's not those old stories about uh, weather balloons, swamp gas, uh, that people didn't buy anyway, so so <laughs> that's full. And, okay, maybe it's not alien. No, no, it is humanly produced, but not by the Nazis, but by the Soviets. Soviets. Yes, yeah. because, <laughs> as we all know, the Soviets were around after the war, but no, no, right? And not only that, just, but also that, I'm not saying that the author is compromised, but no matter her position here, many of those people she has gotten access to for some miraculous reason, who gives her this story that it's human, but it's Soviet, not Nazi, are yes. deep insiders. Yes. So many insiders that this has to be blessed from above. And what does that tell us? Yes. That tells me that you're onto something here. Well, yeah, I found it very suspicious, Al, that that uh, her book uh, on Area 51 came out so quickly after Roswell and the Reich. Mm. Uh, to me, this was whether or not she was a party to it or not, I don't know. But it clearly, to me, signaled that somebody is attempting to spin this once again away from the Nazi angle. Mm. So, again, I point out that my book is a book based on a very close, fine-tooth comb examination, mm. not only of the documents that the Roswell research community itself has pointed to as being part of their case for the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And I'm saying, have you, you know, I'm basically saying, did you really read the documents? Mm -hmm. Have you really paid attention to the fact that they're pointing the finger at the Nazis in both versions, in the original and in the alter, altered version? Mm -hmm. And to my, to my mind, no, they're, they're deliberately ignoring the clues in the documents themselves, which I go over in the book with a fine tooth comb. So, in other words, she's coming along and she's reproducing <clears throat> essentially the whistleblower approach. And again, uh, I'm pointing out that you can have either research based on documents and the other research that's actually out there and a close examination of the evidence from the documents and the evidence from the technology. Or you can have whistleblowers take your pit. And in the end, you have to be down on the side of the research rather than the whistleblower testimony. Because the whistleblower testimony, let's be very clear, does not address the issue of the documents. It does not address the issue of the technology in detail. It does not attempt to trace the technology tree back to their historical prototypical antecedents in the record, which are clearly Nazi. So, in other words, you can have a case or you cannot have a case. And, and I think clearly this was, was another attempt to spin it again, because the real problem here for the national security establishment, as I pointed out at last year's secret space program conference. The real problem is not only are they dealing with the communist bloc, not only are they dealing with a very real UFO problem, they're also dealing with post-war Nazis. And by the time of Roswell and the Shulgin Memorandum, the Intelligence Collection Memorandum, it's very clear that they realize that there's a Nazi group out there somewhere in the world and they're still producing this stuff and we better find out where they are and what they're doing. Yeah. 
If the Hortons only made triangle-shaped planes, uh, why would the military ask for the whereabouts connected to Roswell? Clearly, exactly. <laughs> clearly, they are, they are associated with uh, some kind of exceptional flying vehicles yes. that the American uh, military understand can have a human basis, Absolutely. and and for some reason associated to the Nazis. Now, let's uh, let's get three questions cleared by you once and for all. Mm-hmm. Question one, what do we really know about Roswell? What does the entire thing boil down to? I'm not indicating that our listeners have lived under a rock for the last 50 years, but <laughs> I mean, there's so much disinformation, hyperbole, myths. So what does the Roswell case really boil down to of hard facts? What do we know? Okay. And, uh, and secondly, what do we have that can tie it to alien or actually makes it seem it doesn't uh, tie into aliens as we already touched of course Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and thirdly what do we have that indicates that there can be a Nazi connection here okay excellent questions and I think I can handle all three of them in in one compact answer (laughs) okay if you if you look at the Roswell story as it has evolved over time The original story, let's go back to the Roswell Daily Record and all the fuss that occurred because of that article. The article says that the U.S. Army Air Force has recovered a flying saucer, debris of a flying saucer, and that they're shipping it to higher headquarters for examination. That's the story. So, in other words, the original Roswell story is nothing more than a story about debris. It's a story about technology. Then several decades later, the story is amended and updated to include the recovery of bodies, all right? Mm. And it's the bodies, if you examine, the way I approach it in Roswell and the Reich is if you examine this unfolding story, it's a very interesting, in my opinion, it has all the hallmarks of a deliberate operation designed to get people not looking too closely at the details recounted by Matt Brazel, the rancher that discovered the debris, by Major Jesse Marcel, the, the intelligence officer at the airbase there. Mm. Um, the original story is about the debris. In other words, it's a story about technology, and therefore the implication is, where is it coming from? Mm. All right. But the bodies enter the story in a very unique way decades later because if you look at it closely, it's with the bodies that you begin to see the meme of the extraterrestrial interpretation of the event entering the picture. And to me, this is key because it clearly looks to me as if somebody wants to keep you looking at the bodies and all the sensational fantastical details that have been recounted and in many cases recounted by in in the most fantastical details you know suction cups on the fingers um, beady lizard-like skin and so on and so forth well in those cases if you examine the testimony of the witnesses carefully the testimony is coming in large part secondhand and by dead man's testimony in other words it wouldn't hold up in a court of law so if if there is corroborating evidence for that, then, yeah, you have to admit, admit these things into discussion. But when you start looking at the corroborating evidence, it's not very it's not very solid. Mm. The remaining testimony about bodies is, interestingly enough, it describes the bodies as being small men, 
all right? In other words, there is really nothing about the detailed testimony of the rest of the body testimony that must compel you, and please note my words, that must compel you logically to the conclusion that these are extra, extraterrestrial beings. So in other words, we're, we're looking at a story that, to me, looks very deliberately crafted to get people off the original story, which was only about the debris, and then looking at the story about the bodies. And once this enters the picture, then watch what happens to the story. People begin using the, de using the bodies to interpret the debris mm. in an extraterrestrial way. What I do is I invert the paradigm. I use the debris which clearly, if you, if you examine the detailed descriptions, clearly has and clearly can be rationalized on the basis of historical technological development being undertaken by humanity and being undertaken by the Nazis, and you use that to interpret the bodies. Mm. Follow me? Yeah. So in other words, the methodology here is also part of the problem of the Roswell story. And again, I go back to what I've said before. I'm throwing the net in a casting out a much wider net because I want to look at not only the Roswell story, but what's happening to these Nazis, what's happening to American intelligence collection efforts after the Roswell event. And when you look at the story in that fashion, then connecting the dots tells you that clearly the U.S. Army Air Force suspects there's a Nazi connection here. It's very clear in both versions of, of the Shulgin Collection Memorandum, which has been cited by the Roswell ufology community itself as part of its evidence that this was an extraordinary extraterrestrial event. And what I'm pointing out to people is, did they even bother to read the document? Hmm. Why would you, if you suspected that you're dealing with ultra-advanced extraterrestrial technology, why would you be concerned about a bunch of Germans building jet-powered flying wings? Hmm. And the answer is, you wouldn't. Hmm. And why would you bring in bell scientists? Exactly. To watch... Why Oops. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And why would you not only bring them in according to those documents that may or may not be authentic, but more importantly, why after the Roswell event do you suddenly reopen the security vetting on some of these scientists mm. within a matter of months? Mm. Why would you do that? Well, you do it if you suspected there's a Nazi connection. You do it if you suspected that what has just crashed in the desert is Nazi technology coming from somewhere in the world and flying around your defense installations with impunity. Mm. This is why you do it. And would you obfuscate the story away from the Nazis? Absolutely you would, for the very simple reason this proposes a, a huge political problem. Mm. Because, of course, the Nazis are supposed to have surrendered. They're not supposed to be out there doing this stuff. You know? mm. Mm. So it's as big of a story in that sense as anything extraterrestrial, but for a very radically different reason. Mm. Would an ongoing – would an indication – let me put it to you in the form of a question. Would the indication of an ongoing post-war covert Nazi research project into advanced propulsion technologies, an independent one, would that cause concern – to the national security establishment of the United States? Absolutely it would.
Mm. Absolutely it would. So this is what I think is going on here. They want to keep people from looking at all the evidence that I've been presenting in all my books that this presence was there after the war, that they were doing these things, and that it may even have played a significant role, not only in the event itself, but in its... Damn. You know what? Bad news. What? The recording was stopped then. Oh, you're kidding. No, but it's not that much because, <laughs> let's see here, uh, because you started to answer a question uh-huh. and then you were cut off. So, uh, your last, uh, uh-huh. the only thing you talked about after that is the, what do we know about Roswell? And it's uh, why uh-huh. it's not alien. Okay. And, and much of it you have talked about already in other programs. Yeah. That's okay. It gives me a chance to just check up on that long, excellent reasoning is on tape here. Okay. I'm taking no chances anymore. The file is actually preserved. Oh, I have been having computer problems, and I don't know if that happened on my end or yours. Uh, I'm not sure, because the, you disappeared for a while. Uh, now, I don't know what happened there, but you disappeared, uh, yeah. and when you came back, it wasn't recorded, and no. I'm so happy I checked that now. Oh, it would be such a big hole in the talk. Uh, I didn't want to stop you, because you were on a flow. Okay. But I, I'll not be paranoid, because as I discussed with um, Daniel, mm-hmm. sometimes, <laughs> if you get a flat tire, it's actually a flat tire. Sure. <laughs> They're not always out to get us. Sure. Now, uh, since it's, um, we have about one more hour, right? Uh, yeah, thereabouts. I mean, I'm not, you don't have to end right at eight o'clock. <laughs> you know, I'm not that, I'm not that picky. <laughs> okay. No, but, but so now, approximately. Yeah. 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 George Ann and I went over time all the time. You know, I know. I you know. know that. So, you know. <laughs> I, I'm gambling on it. Don't, don't sweat. Don't, <laughs> don't sweat, sweat it. it. <laughs> All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. So, um, uh, if you look at the scientists they brought in, we know that Debus and Aubert was uh, true believers. What, what about uh, the interview you mentioned where they briefed uh, Gerlach? Did that take place after Roswell or before? If memory serves me correctly, Al, I think it was circa late 1946, very early 1947. So it would have been before Roswell. But would it be before Admiral Earl Byrd? It would have been more or less contemporaneously, I think, with with Admiral Byrd. Okay, because last time we discussed the possibility of a Nazi base in Antarctica right. surviving the war. Right. And grant that it was only a small base, not equipped to produce a lot of power. However, if they managed to get field propulsion disc up on its wings mm-hmm. prior to the Roswell incident, mm-hmm. for instance, let's say the, the Bell uh, refinement, don't you think it would make sense to hide it further away than Patagonia, even if the Bell was in Patagonia? Because in the immediate years after the war, Bormann and company did not still feel safe and would need insurance, and to psychopaths like Bormann, only brute force counts. So they needed a super weapon like a flying disc. No, 
again, I'm, I'm not going there for the very simple reason that hiding it. No, 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 not a bell, not a bell. I'm just saying if they succeeded, wouldn't it make more sense to hide the discs they produced in Antarctica? No. Again, you're going to you're going to need tight security. And that would have been much – I'm looking not only at basing problems, I'm looking at security. Mm. The security that they would have had in, in, in San Carlos de Bariloche and in the Rio Negro province and then further south in Argentina would have been much tighter simply by dint of the sheer numbers of people that they have available there. Mm. And additionally, we have to look – You know, everybody says Antarctica, Antarctica. I'm saying Andes Mountains cave systems. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is this, to my mind, is a much more ready-to-hand, uh, from simply a logistical and infrastructure and security point of view, would have been far more probable had they had any field propulsion capability at that time. But again, yeah. I I have my doubts even on that score for the very simple reason going back to the documents of of the Roswell case and in particular the Twining and Shogun memoranda, mm. which are authentic documents. Clearly, if you read the documents, and again, you know, I'm faulting the Roswell Research Community for not doing. The documents are pointing out contrails. They're pointing out roaring noises. It's very clear that General Shulgin has in his head that they are vectoring jet exhausts from these craft. They're looking for the Horton brothers. So, in other words, mm. even the technical details in these documents are not pointing toward field propulsion possibilities. Oh. They're pointing to very advanced jet turbine possibilities. So, the Roswell vehicle itself may have been ordinary jet propulsion, just advanced version. Just a, an extremely advanced sort of turbine. Uh, you know, think of a Schauberger turbine. Yeah. I'm not, I'm to this day not convinced that anything uh, with a field propulsion capability had crashed there. But even if it did, even if it did, we still have to rationalize why do we have these very odd details in the Shulgin Collection Memorandum of what they're trying to look for and find. And it's very clear. If you, if you keep an open mind about it, if you're willing to suspend your belief in, in the extraterrestrial interpretation of the Roswell dogma, uh, for just a moment and really read the document. It's mm. very clear that you cannot get out of that document the idea that they're dealing with an anti-gravity uh, aircraft rather than a conventional jet turbine of a very advanced nature of some sort. So Yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, but it's just that I'm trying to tie in uh, the Admiral Bird, Bird story somehow uh, mm -hmm. to this. because, But the, the Ros your Roswell analysis isn't dependent on that. So no. even if they remained in South America and did nothing on Antarctica after the war, or if they indeed had a little small insignificant base in Antarctica... Mm -hmm. The Roosevelt scenario stands. Now, I'm trying to tie it to, because if they had, or, or were just experimenting with moving these vehicles over Antarctica, mm -hmm. if then the bothersome Admiral Byrd shows up with his crew, uh, right. it, it makes kind of sense, okay, they are intruding on us. Uh, let's send uh, something up to them because right. we, we can't hide the fact that Roswell was a hotspot uh, related to nuclear research at the time. Right, right. right. It's not it's not an insignificant place no. to have a UFO snooping around, is it? 
no, not at all. But let's let's look at the Admiral Byrd story from this Roswell angle. Mm-hmm. If you look at Admiral Byrd's statement in the El Mercurio in, in Santiago de Chile, what is very clear from that article is that Byrd is simply saying that the United States must prepare to defend itself against enemy fighters that can fly from pole to pole with Mm. tremendous speed. So there's nothing even in that statement that suggests that you must interpret what he means as field propulsion flying saucers. It could equally be supersonic jet aircraft Mm. that are capable of flying that distance at tremendous speed. So, you know, again, these things have been so spun in the ufology community in a certain way as always to suggest either Nazi field propulsion or alien flying saucers that we forget to look at the documents and suspend what we've been told that they say and actually examine what they do say. And Bird nowhere suggests anything or any detail that compels you to the conclusion he's talking about field propulsion vehicles. But another guy who does that and who also can be a part of you naming what evidence we have for a Nazi connection is Colonel Corso. Yes. Doesn't he somehow tie in, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. even though he does entertain the alien aspect, mm-hmm, he also ties mm-hmm. in the Nazi aspect? Well, Corso to me is a very interesting character. Corso is an interesting case because Corso, when his book first came out, it caused, of course, a sensation within the alternative community. Mm. And then he was more or less sort of tacitly dropped. Uh, he, most ufology people are not really comfortable with his book at all and don't like to go there. Mm. And I think, again, this is, this is too one-sided a reaction. Corso very clearly in his book does indicate that he thinks Roswell was extraterrestrial. He very clearly indicates that it is his thinking that this technology was extraterrestrial. He very clearly indicates that it's some sort of field propulsion technology. No dispute about this. But what is intriguing to me is almost every time he does this, Oftentimes in the very next sentence, in even in a couple of instances I cite in Roswell and the Reich, in the same sentence, mm. he'll point the finger at the Nazis. And my question is, he, he lists five technologies, Kevlar, fiber optics, um, and a bunch of other stuff, lasers and so on and so forth, that uh, come from extraterrestrial technology being uh, transistors being seeded into American industry by a crashed extraterrestrial craft. And then he goes on to say something after naming these technologies, something to the effect of, and this had a strong resemblance to some of the stuff that we saw coming from the Nazis. (laughs) Okay, let's stop and look at his list. Fiber optics. Well, as I point out in Roswell and the Reich, the Germans during World War II were working on something called optical telephony. We don't even know what that is. But optical telephony suggests something along the lines of fiber optics. Mm. Uh, Were they working on lasers? Well, as I pointed out in in, uh, the Philosopher's Stone, 
And in our last show, you went into depths about yeah, uh, nuclear and laser research. Yeah, the, it, it, it is possible that they may have been working on some sort of chemical laser isotope enrichment process. Mm. You know, which again, if you if you get into detailed argument. Uh, hey, is that where the funny toothpaste story that uh, Georgian was so fond of comes in? Yeah, that's where it comes in. <laughs> that's right, where it comes right. in because, you know, you hear all these stories about the IG Farben Buna plant at Auschwitz suffering failure after failure and difficulty after difficulty. Well, for crying out loud, IG Farben knew how to make synthetic rubber. <laughs> you know, this was this was not an unknown process to them. They would not have had difficulty at Auschwitz for that mm. i suspect that the difficulties indicate that what they're really working on and and again the farm hall transcripts kind of corroborate this that you know hartick said you know at one point that he saw something at ig farben where they were enriching isotope with only 10 people and that he was amazed well that implies an extremely exotic technology to do this and chemical lasers the 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 science for lasers was available during the war it had been available since the 1930s you know that's the big question about that scientists have had why did it take so long to invent the laser well i suspect it was invented in chemical laser form and that the reason ig farben was having all these difficulties was simply that you have to learn by so, so to speak brute experimental trial and error method what frequencies exactly you have to tune the laser to in order to separate the isotope that you want. It's, it's that simple. So, again, you have a Nazi antecedent there. You've got Nazi antecedents with memory metals. Uh, you know, the, the ufology community made a big stink about nitinol, you know, the memory metal of some of the debris that was crumpled up and then would unfold creaseless back into its original shape. Well, they pointed out that memory metals were uh, discovered with in 1965 at the U.S. Naval Lab and so on and so forth. I point out in Roswell and the Reich, no, this is not correct. Memory metals were actually discovered by a Swedish chemist in 1938 using nickel-cadmium alloys. Hmm. And would, you know, would that be of interest to the Nazis? Well, of course it would. So in other words, what I do is I go through all of Corso and, and other... Uh, accounts of the of the Roswell debris in detail and attempt to see is there some sort of human antecedent for these things even even Jesse Marcel's descriptions and uh, hypnotically recalled drawings of the descriptions of, of the strange characters that he saw on the debris uh, I compare that to to the quantum diagrams of, of hydrogen and so on and so forth which are very similar so in other words you can ration my point is you can rationalize the debris by clear human technology and that's the problem that they don't want you to look at but strange symbols clearly if he was a military man that close to the war he must have been familiar with some of the nazi symbols oh sure Sure. So they they in themselves, but they have a lot of uh, more obscure symbols in the Nazi philosophy, which he wouldn't be expect to know. And I'm thinking right. more of exotic SS sigils. Well, that could be. Yeah, that could be. And but it's important even here to point out something else that I uncovered while researching the the Roswell story and other Roswell researchers is Jesse Marcel's original story did not 
have anything to do with bodies. Mm. And he did not come out and say originally in his first interviews that he thought this was extraterrestrial. That was kind of, he was kind of led to that conclusion in later interviews by the people interviewing him. So even this is a part of the problem of the story. Uh, so what uh, what do we have then to indicate axis involvement other than what you mentioned? We have uh, Corso, we have uh, the documents, the Horton brothers are asking for right. all that. Bell scientists right. are brought in. We have Nazi symbols. Uh, we have no mention of alien connection. Uh, I remember once, I think it was in a Bacho talk. It may have been in one of your books. Uh, you mentioned something about regarding the even if we take the claims about bodies seriously, there was something about small people and yes. experiments in Japan. Yes. Nick Redfern, another researcher, uh, prior to my publication of Roswell and the Reich, I think by a few years, in fact, came out with another book called Body Snatchers in the Desert. And again, this is a book that was based in large part on whistleblower testimony in which he was told that what was being experimented upon were advanced um, American projects using Japanese progeria victims. Progeria is that disease where human beings age very quickly. Oh, yeah. So that you have little children that have a, a body metabolism of, you know, 40 and 50-year-olds, and they look, they look rather strange. And they usually uh, die before they become 20, right? Yeah, they usually die at a very, very young age, in, in adolescence or shortly thereafter. They look some kind of, uh, yeah, like dwarfish. Uh, yeah, they look dwarfish. The features are a little exaggerated in some cases and so on. But they look like old babies, old men. Yeah. Hmm. I found that very interesting because, again, you compare the story to most of the eyewitness, alleged eyewitness testimony about uh, seeing dead bodies and, and the language to me, I, I'm again, I'm a documents researcher. I pay very close attention to the language that was used by people. Mm. So let's, let's, let's do a hypothetical here. Suppose you've run across a body in the desert sitting in a field of strange debris and the body is green skinned, four armed and three eyed. Okay. Now in your description of the body to the authorities, would you not mention those kinds of details? Yeah, of course you would. Of course you would, because they're so glaringly obvious. Mm. But when you read the vast bulk of the, and let's remember, these stories come out decades later than the original story. This is crucial, because this means you're dealing with a, another added layer to the story. Mm. When you read the descriptions of these bodies, they're short on details like that. And the language itself used to describe them is men. They, they talk about men or little men or, in some cases, men that look like children and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, the language itself, to me, does not compel you to the conclusion of extraterrestrials except in those three cases of witnesses talking secondhand or from dead man's testimony about strange features like suction cups on the hand or lizard-like beady skin, and I review those cases in the book. In one uh, case... I say you debunk them. <laughs> I, I debunk them because even the Roswell researchers themselves have debunked them. Mm -hmm. 
You see, and this is my point. If they're doing it, then how does the extraterrestrial case stand? Mm -hmm. And the answer is it really doesn't. You're dealing with something else entirely. So, so these could have been human beings that are, have this disease. Yeah, they, they could have been human beings that had some uh, deformative disability. Mengele experiment. Mengele, yeah, you know, something like that. Um, but there's nothing in that record that compels you, in my opinion, to the conclusion that you're dealing with something extraterrestrial. And again, I'm, you know, I'm on record as being suspicious of any stories about bodies because they're coming out too late. Mm. And we know that the Japanese were researching this uh, disease? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. They were researching that, you know, the Japanese Army Unit uh, 731 that was doing uh, experiments on, on human beings every bit, if not more, much more. Mm. in my opinion, grisly than anything that Mengele and his company. Because the classical grey look is a little actually like these people. They have big yeah. eyes, they have big weird eyes. faces. Right. Yeah. Right. With the, yeah, many of these typical myth archetypal greys yeah. look, look like that. But uh, of course, there's also been a hypothesis in the alien camp that uh, they are like uh, organic robots or, or somehow right. Right. Uh, experimented to represent someone else. Right. In, in which case they are a covert device that shouldn't warrant too much investigation because they're a red herring. If they're a layer yeah. between the real puppet masters and us, yeah. they are a red herring. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly that's exactly my thinking, Al, is I think this this is a deliberately added layer to the story. Mm. Um, it is not, to my mind, entirely unsuspicious that the people that added this layer to the story had some connection at some point to the U.S. military, or in the case of William Moore, as most people now know, mm. a, a clear uh, case that he made a deal with U.S. intelligence to, to obfuscate the data in the UFO community. Mm. So, you know, I, I view that whole layer of the story with a great deal of skepticism and suspicion, because to me, it, it shows clear classic signs of a deliberate attempt to obfuscate the data set away from the debris, which was the original story and which, to my mind, is still the most significant part about the story. When people, just to give a, an example, if I were to say the word Roswell right now, without thinking about it, what do your listeners think of? Do they think of the debris or do they think the of the green little man from Mars? Or the green little man from Mars? Well, yeah. the answer probably is they think of the green little man from Mars because that has been such a deliberately driven meme about yeah. Mars. You, you see it even in the tourist industry oh, yeah. around Roswell. Absolutely. It's all about these green little man from Mars, all the way. Yes, and it's nothing about the debris. No. Hmm. But okay, but let, let's entertain that scenario then. Let's say for the sake of the hypothesis that what crashed was some kind of exile Nazi vehicle. It may not even have been anything else than yet propulsion. Now, when do you think then that the military industrial complex did possess field propulsion because they clearly do now to have a space yes. fleet yeah so do you think sometimes during the 40s or the 50s that they were had it that early on no but i would say that they have something prototypical by the mid 60s to late 60s 
Yeah. Um, That's the 60s. But what went on in the 50s? Uh, you know, in the aftermath of Roswell, did we hear the Roswell mythos itself? Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. didn't take off until the 80s, right, isn't that right? Right, right. Um, the 50s are an amazing time because when you when you sit and look at and connect the dots of all the events, you've got Roswell in 1947. Then you have the beginning of the American hydrogen bomb tests in 1952 which led the U.S. Air Force in 1954 after the Castle series of tests and, and the crazy results that they were getting from a couple of those devices, led the American Air Force to secretly interview Richter down in Argentina. I, you know, I've covered that story. Then you had, of course, Thomas Townsend Brown, who I think is a key figure in all of this. He's the American physicist that, that uh, even as early as the 1920s was saying that he was getting electrogravitic effects in some of his experiments. Well, Thomas Townsend Brown, interestingly enough, right about the mid-50s, right after the, the uh, Castle hydrogen bomb test series, he goes deeply black. He becomes apparently a, a key researcher for companies like Lockheed Martin and so on and so forth. Uh, at that very time, he proposes his project Winter Haven to, to the United States as an electrogravitics research project. And even more interestingly, in the early 1960s, he is one of the founders of NICAP, the National Investigative Committee for Aerial Phenomena, which of course is a UFO study group, it's a UFO research group. Uh, so again, you have all of these things dot connecting that you have to do. If Thomas Townsend Brown is working at Lockheed, well, chances are he's, you know, bumping and rubbing shoulders with Clarence Kelly and Ben Rich. And, you know, we know what, what Ben Rich said was going on at, at Lockheed. Um, yeah. Then by the 19, late 1960s, you have Davis, uh, the Bell scientist, ending up as flight director for the Pro Project Apollo flights out of Cape Canaveral. So, you know, this is a Nazi you know, <laughs> has his fingers in every little pie that you can think of in NASA. And incidentally, very interestingly, Kurt Davis, um, I believe it was in a later book, uh, Covert Wars and Clash of Civilizations, I believe, that I pointed out that Kurt Davis actually headed up NASA's UFO studies. Right. You know, so. <laughs> hey, when was NASA founded? NASA was founded, I believe, in 1958. Uh, yeah, prior to that, it had been the National Aeronautics uh, Committee or something like that. And then formally 1958. The predecessor, when was that set up? After Roswell? Uh, that, was, that was set up very, very early on. It may have been around the time of Roswell or shortly thereafter. I don't honestly remember. But again, you know, connecting all these dots, very clearly, I, I think an alternative technology was involved in, in Project Apollo. I stated that very early on in SS Brotherhood of the Bell. Mm. Um, you know, if, if you've got Bell technology and you're using this to and, and testing time dilation effects with radioactive material, this may have led to a technology to get you through the Van Allen belts. It may have led to a technology that helped you get off the moon once you got there. Yeah. Um, to me, I, I've never been an Apollo hoaxer, although, you know, I remember as a child watching the moon landing 
and watching the lunar excursion module take off from the moon and thinking, gee, that doesn't look like a rocket. And I even turned around and looked right at my dad sitting in the chair. And I said, that doesn't look like a rocket, does it, daddy? And he, you know, he looks and grunts and shakes his head. Approved? Yeah, you know, um, you have all these indicators. Well, uh, we'll take on uh, NASA together with the JFK, I think, next time. But obviously then they researched something that could have been uh, the foundation for the breakthrough in the 60s that we know they have. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. There's there's no doubt in my mind. Just the, just the presence of people like Thomas Townsend Brown within the American Blacks Projects community and even his alleged role in the Philadelphia experiment. It's not just the Nazis, you know, Americans aren't stupid. But either it's not just the Nazis working on all this advanced stuff. It's clearly going on in this country and going on from a relatively early period. When was uh, the Philadelphia experiment? Uh, 1943. Okay, so the, the, even that early, they may have been onto something. Sure. Yeah, uh, I took great pains in in my book Secrets of the Unified Field to point out that you don't have to go to to fantastical stories about the Philadelphia experiment. You can look at people like Arnold Sommerfeld, you know, a, a colleague of Albert Einstein, a personal friend of his, who's proposing some of these wild ideas about invisibility and radar invisibility and so on and so forth. Mm. So it's not, you know, nothing that the Nazis were doing is really all that unusual when you look at some of the counterparts that are being proposed as advanced research projects in this country during the war. So it's not all that mutual. But they were dragging their feet and sitting on their hands during the 50s because it was when JFK came into office and demanded. He, he more or less just said, you guys are useless. Now I have a time limit for you. You're going to yeah. reach this goal. I mean, when you come down with that kind of uh, strong mission task, uh, obviously what they achieved during the 60s, they could have achieved during the 50s if uh, the demand was there because there were no breakthroughs in the 50s that we know about that was so unique that they didn't also have access to it. What I'm trying to say is the technology was rather similar in the 50s and the 60s for them to have pulled it off yeah. either decade, right? Well, yeah, I think I think the indicators, you know, Nick Cook makes a very interesting point in his book, uh, The Hunt for Zero Point. And that is during the mid-50s, anti-gravity discussion in the open popular and academic literature just disappears. It just completely goes cold. Uh, and to me, that's an indicator that something has happened within the Black Projects community during the 1950s. It's at that precise time that Townsend Brown makes his project Winter Haven uh, proposal to the United States Air Force, I believe it was. It's at that time, of course, that he's already gone to France and conducted his experiments for the French in vacuum and disproven the idea that his effect is due to ion wind. Mm. So, in other words, you know, he's he's done the proof of concept experiment. Um, it's during this time that all of this goes deeply black. Uh, you had Northrop Grumman proposing uh, anti-gravity research and so on and so forth. This all goes deeply black. So my suspicion is by the time you get to things like the alien reconstruction vehicle that Mark McCandlish has talked so much about and, and written about, that, yeah, something has happened. There has been a breakthrough somewhere and that all of this has been been held very closely to the chest uh, ever since then. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you that by the 1960s, I think it's possible 
it's feasible that you had some very rudimentary field propulsion capability that that had been developed you know from nazi projects from american projects and so on yeah when we had uh, dolan on uh, he suggested too that at least by the 60s when i asked him what he thought about when we possessed we i'm saying we again i must learn not to identify with these western puppet masters because they, the oligarchs have no common uh, interest with us but the west the military industrial complex in the west he felt had it by the 60s now if we look at the 40s and the 50s again we see that a lot of stuff happens that explains uh, the 60s when it set up uh, a lot of other stuff like yes. uh, NSA and all that. So so I'm thinking uh, to bring in Nazi scientists to revisit their cases. That's that's pretty risky to if we suspect that Nazis are still yes. flying about or, uh, out there <laughs> literally then surely someone in the Western system must have thought, wait a minute, these people are a security risk, and to let them have close encounter with... Uh, they surely must have thought that their own Nazis were wrapped up and not in communication with, with the, the exile Nazis. I take a very different view. Mm-hmm. Um the view that I tend to, Al, is that it's very suspicious to me, number one, that Davis's case is reopened after the Roswell incident. Mm. And secondly, that he was approved. So my suspicion is rather that the U.S. Army counterintelligence was rather low on the totem pole in the pecking order mm. and that pressure was applied from within the national security establishment, from very high up, to allow these scientists to continue in their positions and even to subsequently go on and and assume some positions of tremendous responsibility like Davis eventually did. And simultaneously with this, we know that the Israelis stopped uh, looking for Hitler and yes. started to they started to get cold feet during the 50s and the 60s yes yes so uh every now and then you know every now and then they toss him a bone like eichmann yeah, yeah, or barbie you know somebody <laughs> low down on the totem pole but the big fish no they, they never get close to any of those people exactly and someone from high above gives the clearance right. Th- this means that uh, the national security state in the west is compromised at this point yeah there i've, I've always assumed that there has been a significant element within the national security establishment that is a rogue element and i suspect that this rogue element consists of people precisely like alan dulles and and richard bissell kinrick yeah even even nelson rockefeller let's remember what nelson rockefeller was doing during world war ii he was Mm -hmm. president roosevelt's intelligence advisor for latin america wow yeah wow (laughs) you know this is this yeah, oh, oh, oh. yeah and that's a connection that's a, right there, man. Lo and behold, that's a connection right there because, you know, where's Martin Borman cashing his check in the 1960s uh, other than a Rockefeller bank? So, you know, yeah, I, I suspect there's, there's a rogue element. I call it the Sullivan and Cromwell crowd. 
of of this group of yeah. people in and around the firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, like the Dulles brothers that become so significant members of, of the national security establishment. Well, let's look at the, these people. These are the people that during the height of World War II are secretly trying to negotiate with the Nazis to, to end the war in the West. And of course, Roosevelt learns about it and, and, you know, cashiers the whole idea. You know, Roosevelt has his own deep, dark skeletons in his closet. You know, people like Harry Hopkins and Harry Dexter White. Yeah, but, but he's a leftist after all. Yeah, he's a leftist after all, and he's got lots of radical leftists in his administration. That's, that's another part of the story. Yeah, that's the direction his skeleton goes. But if sure. you look at his successor, Truman, Truman so he is, was the Ku Klux Klanner. Well, he, not only that, but the real important story here is that Truman, and I go into this in, in the third way the, a bit, you know, I'm kind of preparing. I haven't read it yet, looking forward. Uh, you have to look, look at that very carefully because... Because Truman inherits a security nightmare from Roosevelt. I mean, it's very clear that he inherits a security nightmare. Yeah, vis-a-vis -vis the Soviets, not vis-a-vis -vis the Nazis. Vis-a-vis -vis yeah. the Soviets, not the Nazis, mm -hmm. right. And on top of that, the Sullivan and Cromwell crowd has already negotiated with the Nazis to turn over their entire military <laughs> intelligence operation to them. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that, I don't think Truman was ever adequately apprised of, you know, what was going on with all of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's inherited the security nightmare at, at the end of the war. And, of course, this spills over House Un-American Activities Committee, Alger Hiss, Richard Nixon, Senator McCarthy. All of these people are pointing all of this out, you know. Mm. And the, the, the whole, the whole post-war period is just this seething uh, cauldron of all these investigations, you know, into the infiltration of the federal government, be it communists with McCarthy or mafia with all of the congressional committees looking at the mafia. You know, all of this stuff is going on. So, yeah, um, I, I do think that there's this rogue element within the national security establishment, and it consists precisely not only just of, of outright Nazis, but of their sympathizers. And, yeah, the financiers. Their the financiers. And so those who thought that Hitler could be controlled and used <laughs> yeah. as a weapon. Yeah. You know, and now it all blew up in their faces, but they were still sympathetic. After all, the Soviets are the enemy because they want to remove class system, and class system means that our entire scheme is up. Yep, exactly. So uh, that's why they hated the Soviets, not because Stalin was a dictator and killed uh, his own people, but the millions. But don't you find it interesting, Joseph, that in the alien uh, extraterrestrial community, they... Uh, make a big deal out of Truman having left to meet with aliens, mm -hmm. while at the same time we know for sure where Hitler was in Argentina. Mm -hmm. And at that very estate, mm -hmm. it's now evidence popping up that Truman has visited to where Hitler was. Well, there. Let me let me make a correction. The story yep. isn't about Truman. The story is about Eisenhower. Oh, I, I, excuse me. I meant Eisenhower. Yeah, right. You're very right. And I find that very suspicious. Because um, the alien uh, Nazi element ha may have been swapped even in that story. Yeah, And exactly. probably in many other stories. What's your take on it? Well, I mentioned that in, in the Nazi International because, of course, there's been this story out that President Eisenhower in 1954, there is a peculiarity during one of his vacations when he's out playing golf in, in the West uh, around Palm Springs, California, that he disappeared. And th th this is true. There is 
there is an anomaly in his schedule where he disappears for a couple of days. Ostensibly, the public story was that he was out getting a tooth fixed at a dentist. And maybe he was brushing his teeth with thorium toothpaste. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, this, this is the problem. The UFO community says that he went to Muroc Air Force Base, I believe it was, where he met clandestinely with extraterrestrials and the story goes that there was actually a film taken of this event and so on and so forth but when you go to argentina this is where i wish people would start really opening their minds and looking at all the explanations for these events i'm not saying that eisenhower didn't meet with et's i don't know okay Mm -hmm. but there is an alternative version of this story from argentina where the argentines the locals that were working for these Nazis in and around San Carlos de Bariloche maintain adamantly that they saw President Eisenhower secretly being whisked into that motel, you know, that German-looking Bavarian chalet Mm -hmm. in San Carlos de Bariloche, where he was meeting with these Nazi leaders and then whisked back to California. Mm -hmm. Well, to do that, of course, you've got to have some pretty sophisticated hypersonic Air, aircraft technology at the time to, in order to get him down there in a couple of hours, have his meeting and get him back. So we have kind of the Eisenhower version of, you know, George Bush and the Iran Contra. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but, um, you know, that story's there and, and you've got to acknowledge that it's there. Do, do I know for sure that Eisenhower went down to Argentina versus talking with ETs? No, I don't, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was somewhere <laughs> doing something and it probably wasn't having his tooth fixed. That's, no. that's the real that's, bottom that's line. That's for sure. And we know that uh, they had plastic surgery, dentists, oh, yeah. Yeah. all sorts of uh, stuff to help uh, the rats uh, transform into a new life. Absolutely. And we know that the worst of the worst got away. The true believers, they either suicided or were trialed. Yep. But those who had something to fear, the cynical sociopaths got away, like Bormann. Yeah. And um, according to, we had on uh, Mr. Harry Cooper of the Shark Hunters, according to him, uh-huh. there's evidence uh, that uh, Eisenhower w- went down there. He didn't connect it with the alien story. I did that. But right, right. If he, they used it with success with uh, Roswell, who's to say they didn't use it other places too? Oh, sure. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's you know, these stories are there. These stories are there. It's interesting you mentioned uh, Commander Cooper because if I remember correctly, I learned about the Argentine version of that story in one of his uh, publications, if my memory is correct. Yeah, he does. He does a lot of original. Uh, yeah, he does. Primary research because he has access to many of these. Many uh, of the people. Yeah. Yeah, and he, his take on the Hitler escape thing was actually a Swedish plane. Uh, uh, of course. That a, could be too. Yeah. A disguised plane, looking like it was Swedish that went to Norway. He followed your route, but instead of because Hitler was famously not a navy guy he was a mountain guy so he got seasick just by sitting in a boat right so right. uh Bormann, i think took the u-boat, u-boat right yeah uh, but a plane with hitler and levanda substantiated well that it. would make sense that would make sense because the the story of the last junkers 390 mm. as far as i've been able to reconstruct it you know the last <clears throat> pardon me the last picture we have of one of those gigantic aircraft is is at the airfield outside of Prague. Mm. From there, I have heard uh, 
the story that that flew from there up to Bodo, Norway, mm. and then from there made the big wide loop out over the North Atlantic where they wouldn't encounter so many Allied aircraft. And it wouldn't surprise me, you know, they paint it with Swedish markings and, and mm. so on and so forth, you know, like the Swedes had an aircraft that big. But. <laughs> no, but I'm thinking the Junker was not the one, uh, but the Junker was probably the one for the Bell. No, no, but he's talking about a smaller plane. Smaller plane, that, yeah. And, and that it happened even before the the invasion of the, the bunker. It happened, I think the last order we know uh, from Hitler was like four weeks before the end of the war. After that, it was Bormann who signed all the orders. Yeah, that was... So according to one of the witnesses, Hitler was pumped full of dope and yeah. just yeah. taken out against his will. But this is a, this is a detail. Back to the... The 40s and the 50s then so if we have uh, this security risk in Roswell mm-hmm. and we have people at the top who protects the Nazis and put them back in operation right certainly it indicates that Bormann's one of Bormann's tentacles that he's so on board with these uh, people from from Cromwell uh, what's the office called uh, the Commerce staff yeah no but the Cromwell office in uh, Wall Street mm-hmm. Oh, Solomon and Cromwell. Solomon yeah. and Cromwell, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, aren't these people Jews, some of them? Actually, no. Most of them are, are uh, wasps, is the expression in America. White Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Um, mm. high, high Episcopalian, Presbyterian. Uh, Alan Dulles and, and his brother, John Foster, you know, were American Protestant patricians. Um, right. John J. McCloy, uh, George Kennan. All these people are are basically, uh, you know, the American patrician class. Uh, and, and they were tied to the German bankers. I'm not talking about oh, the, absolutely. Not, the, not the Jewish, but the German German. Right. They, uh, McCloy, of course, was I.G. Farben's American lawyer. He shared a box with Hitler at the Berlin Olympics. He becomes American high commissioner for Germany after the war. So we must look at the usual suspects. What about Yalma Shaft? Uh, his uh, connections to Yalma Shaft. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's. I know he's still operating uh, <laughs> around uh, the world, but can he be tied to the Roswell case or the, the, any of the financiers? Not in any direct measure that I've been able to detect. But um, the thing here that we always have to bear in mind, the case I've been trying to make with all of this Black Projects research, that not just the Nazis were doing, but that we were doing, mm. and even the Soviets. Uh, you know, I've neglected to mention that that Richard Dolan has pointed out that there has been uh, there was a sighting by a U.S. senator traveling by train in Russia of some sort of field propulsion experimental Russian craft. Yeah. That very clearly they wanted him to see and then pretended that like they didn't want him to see it. Hmm. You know, like like we've got this stuff too right, and we, right. we know where it comes from. You know? yeah. <laughs> but, Diplomatic. But, yeah, uh, it's a little different. Sign language. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. But um, when you're looking at all these black projects, here's the thing that I think we have to remember. The, the American national security establishment, for all of its many, many faults, did have a strategic problem of just colossal proportions that they were facing at the end of World War II. Mm. And we can fault the decisions that they took on moral grounds or other grounds, 
But the fact remains, they were confronted by a communist threat, they were confronted very obviously by a Nazi threat, and they had the UFO problem on top of all of this, mm. where there were genuine UFOs that nobody knew. Where, where is this stuff coming from, and why are they shutting down flights of our ICBMs? You know? mm. and they're dealing with a threefold strategic threat, and I think they take the decision that they have to, number one, not cave in to whatever implicit threat is coming from off-world, all right? Mm -hmm. And this means that they're going to want to develop technological parity or near parity with the phenomenon that they're observing. And to do that, they have to set up a black projects program, a crash program, like the Manhattan Project, but unlike the Manhattan Project, they know this is going to take much longer, and therefore it's going to need much more money we have to keep it absolutely secret, you see, so it can't even be really uh, items on the black budget. It has to be so secret that it's not even part of the black budget. Are we entering uh, yes. sources, uh, psyops, uh, exactly. area now, that book? Exactly. Mm. We, are, we are entering the realm of this, what I believe was a post-war hidden system of finance that, again, President Truman, uh, put into place, leaving it in the hands of, of the National Security Council and, and therefore of the intelligence community, what he essentially does is he puts the intelligence community in the banking business. And Truman, he's so right-wing. He's a former Klansman. Yes. He, he's the one who's in charge when Hitler is giving safe passage. Yes, yes. I find that interesting. Yes, Truman Truman is a key key figure in all of this, there's no doubt. And he's probably one of the last presidents to be fully apprised of yeah. all of this stuff because he had to be. You know, he's the one that's making the decisions that's going to create the national security establishment, that's going to create, as he did, this hidden system of finance. And it's going to last decades. This is the key thing here. He's going to create this hidden system of finance. And that hidden system, as I pointed out in, in the covert wars books, is going to be based in large part on recovered Axis loot. Mm. And as I pointed out in, in San Mateo, you're not going to be able to access all of that loot without the cooperation of the former Axis elites themselves. Yeah. So this is why I think you get in bed with people like Kalmar Schacht. I mean, this man is a jet-setting intelligence agent provocateur in the post-war period like nobody's business. Mm, mm. He shows up in Iran during the overthrow of, of Mossadegh. He shows up in Indonesia with Sukarno. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he, this guy, he shows up in Egypt and negotiating with Gamal Abdel Nasser and the Saudis and all of this stuff. This guy... I'm convinced, is one of the key financial movers and shakers for this hidden system of finance and all sorts of skullduggery in the post-war world. And when you, when you look at Schacht, it's very interesting to me that Schacht has not only his, his connections within the Nazi elite, I mean, you know, for crying out loud, you can go online and see pictures of this guy yeah. strutting right beside Adolf Hitler. Mm. But this guy also had huge, deep connections within the Western central banking system with Montague Norman at the Bank of England, with Benjamin Strong at the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank of New York. This guy was connected. <laughs> yeah, he is the financier of the spin. Yeah, he's the finance of it. Absolutely. He works for Bowman. He works for just about anybody who will pay him yeah. and further his agendas. And. 
you know, he's he's not necessarily a Nazi, but he is a German nationalist. No, but he helped. Didn't he help uh, finance uh, the defense of uh, Eichmann? I think. He, yes, he financed a lot of this stuff. He worked for Bowman, I'm sure. He he was uh, oh, yeah. ideologically connected, also not just financially. Yeah. But how anti-Nazi can we assume that Truman was? He inherited a war. Right. That, of course, he couldn't uh, give the Germans any clemency at that point, so he had to finish the project. But he he kind of came in as the cleaner, yeah. and then swiped everything under the rug instead of cleaning up. Yes. That's basically what he did, and I don't think Roosevelt would have stood for it. Well, Truman, like I said, inherited a, a huge security problem from the Roosevelt administration, principally from all of the very radical left-wing and and quite bluntly communist sympathizers if not outright communists that were in his government this is why the whole mccarthy house on american activities committee thing gets started but it is truman let's let's be very clear and and to truman's credit it is truman himself that institutes his loyalty review board vetting of a lot of these roosevelt holdovers that he inherits he sets this whole process going. It's not McCarthy. It's not Nixon. It's not Alger Hiss. It's not Whitaker Chambers. It's Truman. And Truman, in addition to this, when he learns about bringing over all these paperclip scientists, it's Truman that issued an executive order that we cannot employ any Nazis in this. Pro in other words, he wants to make awful darn sure that there are no really ideologically committed Nazis in this whole thing. Of course, that was ignored, as so often happens in, in, in bureaucracies as big as the American bureaucracy. Truman's order was simply ignored. So I don't know. I do think Truman was, was very well apprised of what he inherits from the Roosevelt administration in terms of you know communist sympathizers and radical leftists and so on. I don't think he was probably as well apprised about the Nazi business because that was a much deeper secret uh, than than what he what he knew was going on with with the Roosevelt administration. So you think the Cromwell people uh, were not trusting Truman that they already had their own power base that he didn't oh yeah control yeah yeah, yeah. the Sullivan and Cromwell people to me it's very interesting. Um, the whole McCarthy episode in this country, I don't think, has ever really been examined adequately, not just from the standpoint of that one investigation itself, but also in the context of the other investigations going on in the federal government, in, in the Congress at the time. Mm. And the reason I say that is that with the publication and declassification of the Venona transcripts, there is this move in, in certain American scholarly circles, both of the left and the right, to reassess what McCarthy was doing and where his sources were coming from. Mm. Well, if you examine his first statements that he makes about the whole communist thing on the Senate floor after his you know, in, now infamous speech at, at Wheeling, West Virginia, he gave a speech on the floor of the Senate in which he very clearly said that his source was the Truman administration's own loyalty review board, mm. and that therefore the cases were known to everybody. Um, but once you get into that whole period with uh, his later uh, Government Operations Committee, I believe it was called, 
when he was actually given his own committee. He's also clearly getting information from somewhere else within the national security establishment. And I think this is ultimately what leads to his demise with, with the Army McCarthy hearings because somebody in the Pentagon woke up and realized that he's getting intelligence from somewhere and, you know, we've got to find the leak and we've got to shut him up. Mm. So there's all of this power play going on in Washington, but the thing that people have to remember is that this is all taking place at a time when there are congressional committees of one sort or another, both Democrat and Republican, in both houses of Congress, that are investigating aspects of the penetration of the federal government. Mm. You've got the House on American Activities Committee. You've got the Reese Committee in the House investigating the foundations, the, the corporate foundations, and their role in public policy formation. You've got all of the Senate investigations of the mafia mm. taking beginning at about the same time. So there's this... Yeah. What I find unusual, Al, is that nobody has sat down, to my knowledge, to make a scholarly examination connecting the dots between all of these different committees and trying to find out just why you had this explosion of investigation of one sort or another of penetration of the federal government. Yeah, but I, I think the answer gives itself, doesn't it? Because the very reason they're not doing it proves that this is connected to a bigger story. Oh, yes, and, absolutely. And, and I think we can safely assume at uh, this point that to bring in JFK, mm -hmm. which is touching in itself, oh, yes, absolutely. is relevant uh, because he enters the scene at this point. Well, he enters the scene. Let me let me tell you something that I, I put in the third way because I wanted people to stop and think about this very problem. In the third way, I have a picture taken, I think, circa 1952 or 53 of some senators gathered in the Senate caucus room, all apparently talking about something. And guess who the senators are? Senator Barry Goldwater. Mm -hmm. Senator John McClellan, uh, the famous Arkansas senator that chaired so many investigations of the mafia and so on. Mm. Senator Joseph McCarthy, you know, the communist scare. Yeah. Senator Carl Munt from my home state of South Dakota. Mm. Senator John F. Kennedy, and with his back to the camera, his brother Robert, who was, most people forget this, Robert Kennedy was an assistant counsel for Senator McCarthy. Mm. Yeah, they were connected via Kennedy's father, right? Who, who right, was. well, they were connected directly themselves mm. to, to him. Mm. So in other words, this, is a, this little picture is an interesting little kind of symbolic tableau of what's going on in this country at the time. Mm. Because you have all of these people, John Kennedy probably being the most famous, who are concerned with something that they suspect has been going on in the federal government of a huge nature, that there's penetration of some sort or another, and they're trying to make sense of it. And then, of course, Kennedy becomes president, his brother becomes attorney general, and then Kennedy issues that uh, statement that has been played so much in the ufology community, and I think it's a real document myself, where he wants orders the CIA to turn vet all of the UFO files and turn it all over to the Soviets mm. for, for a joint moon mission with Nikita Khrushchev, you know. Yeah, I think actually Hoagland was the first who alerted me to this, because he talked about this long before it became uh, fashion again in the news, but it has had... Uh, 
uh, re-substantiation uh, by the fact that first it was uh, Nikita Khrushchev's son who came out and verified. Yeah, Sergei Khrushchev. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. And now the latest is um, it just came out in the news again not that long yeah. ago. There were some documents yeah. that were released or something, CIA documents, FBI. There have been CIA documents that have been released. Those have been around for a while. It's actually Robert and and Ryan Wood um, who these the the CIA document you're talking about was originally a part, if I'm not mistaken, of the Cooper Cantwell documents that they have been. Uh, vetting and going over. So this has been around for a while, unless it's some different document I'm unaware of. But yes, this has been uh, trotted out again. <laughs> and it does put yet another, another. it gives you another data point <coughs> by which to, pardon me, by which to understand uh, the murder of President Kennedy. Because he was very clearly, you know, not only wanting to clean house in the CIA, and I suspect, again, that like Truman, he realizes he's inherited a mess. Yeah, he took on everyone, the Nazis, yeah. Nasa, yeah. everyone. Yeah, he took on everyone. He's making a lot of enemies and making them very quickly. Um, and this adds yet another detail to consider that he's he's aware that there's a UFO problem, that he knows the CIA is sitting on top of it. And he wants them to go through their files and, and pull out all the things that don't have national security implications so that we can share it with the Soviets. Yeah, that's a, this is a Pandora's box best left for next program, I think, yeah. um, how this ties into to the 60s. And, and, and uh, the next time we'll invite you on to discuss the... Nazi connections to the Kennedy assassination, but also huh. your book on the Kennedy assassination. Okay. Uh, this, um, because we're, we're at the top of the hour here, so we better wrap it up for this time then. Okay. I'm really looking forward to the JFK thing, because I always, there's always stuff there that people haven't touched upon. Yeah, absolutely. So that I think we can, yeah. So next time, I think we can just continue with the JFK then. Uh, All right. Your take on that book there. Uh, we, let's let's give that as a teaser that we're going to take on Kennedy, and after that, I promise people we're going to let Joseph loose, and we're going <laughs> to <laughs> we're going to bring up other subject matters with him, and take a little break from the uh, breakaway civilization series that we're you're, you're contributing to here. But for today, Joseph, uh, what we need to do now before I can really let you go okay. is I uh, also need to mention one more thing. Mm -hmm. Now, we brought it upon ourselves, uh, actually, because we started out with such a heavy focus on war history, mm -hmm. not only with you, but also with uh, uh, Lavanda and a few others. Uh -huh. So it's unavoidable that we get a lot of, should we say, Nazi sympathizers to check <laughs> in. Uh, yes. Yeah. And you know about this. You've been writing about this. Yes. No, we're not uh, Zionist uh, agents, <laughs> right. as you're accused of being, because we haven't... Oh, all the time. <laughs> exactly. The Nazis are annoyed with us because we don't, we're not taking on the Jews. Yeah. Oh, you don't mention the Jews, so you're a part of the Zionist conspiracy, yep. right? Yep. Oh, I get yep. that all the time. I know, okay. I know. This is, this if, is I, if I don't blame Israel for all the world's ills and problems, then, you know, I'm a Zionist shill. Yeah. In addition, we got the opposite, too. <laughs> 
we're on a double fire. We got people who, hey, why are you calling it the Allied myth? Why are you talking so much about the Nazis? And why aren't you condemning them? Why aren't you focusing on the camps? Yep. So because of that, we gripped the Nazis. So we're on a crossfire here because on the one hand, we got people who say that, oh, you don't condemn the Nazis. You don't talk about all the terrible things they did or, or the Holocaust and blah, blah, blah. Well, we need to say that there's a million shows about that already. If you want to learn about, right. you know, the torture, about fascism, etc., you're not lacking information. So, no, we're not Nazis just because we talk about <laughs> the Nazis. <laughs> You haven't touched the Holocaust, therefore you're a Nazi. You haven't touched the Holocaust, therefore you're a uh, Zionist. So it's fucked if you do, fucked if you don't. Yeah. So I think it's important that um, keeping it real is important for us here at the forum. So, yeah, sure. so I was thinking, Joseph, that today we can also spend a few minutes on making our position clear. Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, my position is very clear, and you probably have no problem making no. your position. No, no, no. And, and uh, for my part, I'm anti anti-Zionist, but I'm also anti-Nazi. I'm both, right? Ah, same here. So, yeah. So, so I just want to say, first, for the forum's sake, we do not appreciate any totalitarian regime. We are freedom lovers. That's why we boldly explore any topic whatsoever, right. including revisiting old uh, established stories. And sure, there's probably a lot of stuff wrong about the Nazis. A lot is war propaganda. We're trying to unravel it here truthfully. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that we are Jewish Zionists just because we have not condemned the what they call the hollow hoax. Yeah. Now, personally, I haven't delved enough into that to account for all details, etc. But I can promise our listeners one thing. In the future, we're going to have a, a focus upon uh, uh, the negative aspects of Zionism. So we're going to be critical later. Uh, we're going to get around to where we can mention, uh, you know, stuff, the bad stuff that Zionists do. Sure, why not? Just as we have critical programs on Nazi, we're also going to criticize Zionism. And we're also going to have more focus upon the negative aspects of fascism. So anyone who are a detriment to humanity will hear it. Uh, because I think we're playing right into the hands of those because the anti-Semitism is so much bigger than I realized. Oh, it is. It's huge. It's unreal. It's, it's the 30s uh, all over again. Yeah, it is. I it notice is. it now. It is. After having started these war programs, I'm kind of amazed how much Jew bashing is around. Oh, yes, yes. It, it, I, I get this all the time, Al. There's a certain group of people that whenever I talk about any subject whatsoever, I get comments, well, Israel did it, you know, there, Israel apparently is behind all the world's ills, according, <laughs> according yeah. to some people. Absolutely, even Islamism. Yeah, you know, even Islam is, <laughs> is a Jewish plot, you know. Yeah. And, you know, and it's notions like it's the Jews. Yeah, it's the Jews. Um, you know, who, who are the Jews? Who are the Jews? Well, you know, we could go on and on about these these topics, yeah. but you know, I get this I get this uh, complaint that I don't talk about Zionism enough. Well, I'll tell you why this angers me. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm probably one of the few people out there that has 
drawn attention again to the statements of Max Nordau at the 10th Zionist Congress that the Holocaust was being planned before World War One. Mm. You know, and I produced the quotations, I produced the sources, which were actually exposed by a Jewish playwright, a rather famous one in this country by the name of Ben Hecht. Uh, so, you know, the, the anti-Zionist scholars very often are Jews themselves. Mm. And, you know, this quotation has gone right over people's heads as to the significance of, of what it is asserting and when it's asserting it. So, you know, I, I, I don't understand, you know, these people that criticize all the time when, when you've handed them a, a huge fact that you'd think that they'd run with, but they're the ones ignoring it, which makes me suspicious <laughs> of them. You know? so, right. Yes. So, yeah, you, you know, you get this all the time. I had a, I had a Jewish brother-in-law. He was very, very sweet man. He was very good to my sister. We actually talked about these things, about Zionism and, and the effect and, and, uh, you know, it's it's something that that there's there's so much hatred out there. There's so much ill will, and and it's usually coming from people that are not very well informed. Yeah. So you know, I I just ignore them. Uh, that's the only thing you can do. You can't argue calculus with people that ha haven't learned algebra. Good point. So you know, <laughs> that's the way I view them. Yeah, we've we tried a little, but uh, yeah. at least we we made it clear where we our position is. And, uh, I'm definitely not pro-Zionist, and I'm definitely not pro-Nazis. No, exactly. You know, as I as I said on George Ann Hughes' show years and years ago, that if you look at if you look at real rabid radical Zionism, it's essentially a race cult, just like yes. like Nazism was. Exactly. And you know, that's about as far from my <laughs> from my. And it's so silly because yes. they realize that you can't brand every German as a Nazi. No, of course not. You can't brand every Jew as a Zionist or every Muslim as a terrorist. You know? Yeah, but they, they don't realize that every Jew is not a Zionist. Right. And when they say stuff like the Jews did it, the Jews are behind it, you, you have to think about the few you know. Right. And certainly the few Jews I know, uh, and there's not many Jews left up here, but the few I know... <laughs> <laughs> or anything but uh, the powers that world be. plotters. Yeah, I mean they wish. <laughs> yeah, they wish they were they were part of a yeah. plot to take over the world. Yeah. Well, you know, you you can go on and on about this. It is true, you know. It's it's, it's a fairly well known historical fact that many of the early communist leaders were were basically secularized Jews. Mm. So you know, th this is this is not new. It's it's really the interpretation that that you put on these types of things. And I think that uh, it's much deeper than simply trying to attribute it all to Zionism or what have you. you or know, to Jesuits or, Jesuits, or Illuminati or, or Satanists. Or Masons yeah. or Satanists. <laughs> <laughs> Those people are certainly out there. They certainly have had an influence. But you need careful scholarship and, and research to, to kind of wade through it all. So, you know, I'm only one man. I can only do so much in a lifetime, you know, as anybody else. 
and there are other people researching in in that field and you know i i just leave it to them to do it um, exactly i mean if you were uh, researching just mainstream topics i could understand you being accused for not giving attention to this or that sure. but you have your hands full as it is with exotic and groundbreaking research so i i don't get it and right. you have been named in the criticism on the server videos oh yeah we belong to what do they call it the the goy elite <laughs> Yeah. If you're not Jews, <laughs> we're helping them. Yeah. <laughs> now, I wanted to address it. I wish I was part of the lead. I wouldn't, yeah, me, I wouldn't fret me, all me my too. financial woes. But anyway, go ahead. Where are the, you know, it, I'd appreciate if either Odessa or the World Zionist would give us some money here so we could <laughs> propagate for them. <laughs> either way, it suits me fine. But, you know, we'll, we'll stay on topic and be truth seekers and... Uh, these simpletons who at least are proving them wrong when they say that you don't dare to mention the Jews. We, we, we can't discuss Jews today, but no, <laughs> at least I proved them wrong today. No, I, you know, <laughs> as I said, I, I pointed all this out in a little book called Yahweh the Two-Faced God. It's a huge, it's a huge story, and I've also told certain people that if you really dig into the story, you're going to find some yeah. some very very troubling. Uh, things, um, you know, if, if they have, if they have the nose and willingness to do the hard research and to start connecting dots, which I haven't seen from them. So, you know, I'm sitting back here. If I ever get around to writing that book, mm. I'm sitting back there just holding all these cards in my hand, kind of laughing, watching at all these people, you know, with, with their silly Zionist conspiracy theories. They're not willing to dig and they're not willing to look at, the facts that are out there and understand the significance of them or even even remotely begin to to attend to them yeah no so so uh, last thing to say about that is that uh, we uh, first of all we've, we've proven the simpletons wrong by mentioning the jews now second of all neither of us have this simple view that there's one group in charge of everything no uh, if anything I, i'd say that you have uh, on, on the contrary of tracking a racial or a religious line, if anything, you've tracked a philosophical right. line right. that we can connect to these things that go back in time. But we'll have you on for shows regarding that when sure. you come around to the antediluvia. Now, thanks a lot for, for coming on again so shortly after the, the conference. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back on, Al. Okay. Take care then. You too, Alf. Yeah, talk, talk to you soon. soon. All right, bye bye. So you've been listening to a conversation with the forum professor, where several of his books were touched upon, some briefly and some more essentially. Specifically, Nazi International, the Nazi's post-war plan to control finance, conflict, physics and space, from 2009, Roswell and the Reich, the Nazi Connection, from 2010, Sources, Swastikos and Psyops, a history of a breakaway civilization, hidden aerospace technologies and psychological operations, from 2012, Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations, The Secret Space Program, Celestial Psyops and Hidden Conflicts, 2012. And finally, Yahweh, the Two-Faced God, Theology, Terrorism and Topology, also from 2012. 
Now, if you enjoy our programs, we encourage you to show some support. As our services are gratis, but our expenses staggering. A little donation goes a long way, no matter how small. Before parting, ponder these prophetic words expressed by former President Eisenhower in 1961. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. With the tragedy in Paris fresh in mind, take a look at the world today. Is it not a playground for both covert and overt military excess? May God have mercy upon the future generations. That's it for today. Your host has been Al, and together with Blue Green, Bella and the rest of the team, we remain yours sincerely. Be seeing you. Number one.